Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. He's going to tell a story about uh, a time 50 years ago. It was 1969, and I took a five-day trip on horseback, covering about 120 miles of the Texas Panhandle. As T.K. Whipple has put it, and study out the land. All America lies at the end of the wilderness road, and our past is not a dead past, but still lives in us. What I am taking from that is that there are things that come together in our memory, in our understanding, that you know, maybe it seems odd that 50 years later I'm still thinking and writing about this trip. It's been woven into my imagination, and I continue to ponder the meaning of the experience, and let me point out that all of this reflection, it certainly has a precedent in the journeys that mark the 19th and 20th century, which a lot of the great literature of the period will arise. I'd already, at the age of 13, when I would take this trip, begun reading of Jack London's boys' stories, and of course I knew that these stories were really based off his trip into the Yukon during the gold rush. He spent about a year, I'm not, what to say that he spent a year mining for gold may not be exactly right, as I think he spent most of the year just trying to survive, holed up in a cabin. He actually got scurvy because there were no vegetables available. And as soon as the winter broke and he was able, he took a trip out of the Yukon on a river, a dangerous river trek. But it's his year in the Alaskan wilderness that becomes the fodder for reflection and stories, which he'll continue to mine throughout his life. Uh, Even his late tale, many may not know of Martin Eden. Uh, Though it is not set in the wild, it still reflects the same notion of survival of the fittest. And maybe I always took it as autobiographical, and of course, I think it's not truly autobiographical, in that the demise of Martin Eden seems to be by suicide, but actually Jack London is going to die of, he dies young at age 40, but of natural causes. But his notion of the survival of the fittest, you know, that's there in Call of the Wild, Uh, even the dog, Buck, and the main characters of the Call of the Wild, and then later in White Fang, he's going to reverse the story. That is, instead of de-evolution, he's going to talk about the evolution or the evolution, you know, where the dog, he goes into the wild and becomes wolf-like. The dog in White Fang, in fact, learns love, and the idea is a, a reverse story. And all of this, I think, is a development of the people, the animals, the wilds that he encountered in his one-year trip into the far north. And it was the only time he visited the far north. He would spent the rest of his life uh, traveling, but I don't think he had any great desire to return back to Alaska. Same thing you could say of Henry David Thoreau, you know, his book Walden. I was completely taken as a young boy with the book, and my imagination was really patterned after his journeys, which if you think of his story, actually he spends his time, the first portion of, of his time, on Walden Pond, writing about a trip that his brother John and he took on the Merrimack River. He will spend some 10 years 
writing about this trip, recalling the trip, the cabin that he builds, or the little hut that he builds on Walden Pond, actually his friends, the poet Ellery Channing and Ralph Waldo Emerson, upon whose land Thoreau would build the cabin, they're encouraging him to reconstruct and write about his river trip with John. The trip is uh, especially poignant, the memories are especially poignant for Thoreau, because soon after the trip, his brother would cut his thumb, and in that day and age, that resulted in lockjaw. Thoreau himself uh, is going to develop a kind of imitation of his brother's disease, a psychosomatic disease, and they feared for his life. And so the event of his brother's death, I suppose it forever tinted the lens through which he would remember his trip on the Merrimack. The point is that his remembrance of the trip is the way that all of these stories, all of these tales of travel, much like the Gospels, that they're always going to be held in, in a kind of memory. There's a remembrance, a certain form of understanding that uh, brings out the meaning only subsequent to the events. And this is the point that I want to bring out, that it is a form of memory and a memorializing of a, a meaning in the trip and a growth of that meaning that is demonstrated in these uh, great literary pieces that I think is a demonstration then of how we maybe, uh, how, certainly how we go about understanding our own lives, but uh, the, the life of Christ. I remember as a young boy, I, di I didn't even know who John Steinbeck was. I, I picked up his book, Travels with Charlie, just because I liked travel stories, and it was about a man and his dog on a journey. I suppose I knew that he was a famous author, or Steinbeck makes that clear. But I was more interested in his real-life tales of travel than I was in his fiction. And I think I tried, perhaps, to read his fiction. I was about 13, and maybe I found it uh, too difficult. But this is the last journey, one of the last things that Steinbeck is going to write. He's dying. In fact, his son says that he's really surprised that his stepmother allowed Steinbeck to make this trip because he could have dropped dead at any point. He was afflicted. I think he had both cancer and was afflicted with heart disease. He had a, a special camper made, and he takes Charlie the poodle, and that's his only companion. Now, Steinbeck, what's interesting about the journey, and his st son warns that a lot of this is fiction, that, that his father is a novelist, and people who have actually tried to duplicate the trip have said the geography is off, and it must be that even the sequence of events are off. And I think his son kind of resented this. He talks about his father just sitting in his camper and making the whole thing up. But I think it's to miss the, the point that he's bringing together a series of events in, in the travel that I guess any good seminarian knows. You know, it's not really the historical events that are the basis upon which meaning unfolds. There, there's sequence, there's summary in the Gospels, there's sequence and summary in any good story. There may be in a rearrangement of events. All of this to serve the meaning and not the other way around. 
I've recently uh, picked up a book on searching for Jesus or the search for the historical Jesus movement. And I'm afraid that this is what happens in this movement, that there is such an attachment to historical details. There is the picture, the kind of fictional picture, I think, that, oh, you gain meaning from the Gospels because of the history. But actually, that's a kind of misunderstanding of the way that meaning functions or that theology functions. You don't read the Gospels for history, but you read for theological meaning that unfolds from that history. I I remember even as a high school student how incensed I was that a high school teacher criticized Thoreau for not staying on in his cabin more than a year. Or, you know, and, and Thoreau does the same thing. He'll take the two-week trip down the Merrimack and he'll reduce it to one leak and there are certain sections he's going to take out in which they're not actually on the Merrimack River. But of course I think she missed the point. She missed the point in the same way that people who imagine that they can do theology through pure factual history miss the point. Those that would critique Thoreau, you know, for reducing his trip or Maybe they critique London for anthropomorphizing his wilderness trips, or Steinbeck for taking liberties with his geography. I fear that these are the sort of factualists that cannot interrupt their search for the historical Jesus long enough to take stock of the theology that is being developed. And so I think from our understanding of our own history, of our own events, that we see how meaning arises. We don't turn to tales of travel. We don't turn to the life of Christ to get a historical picture. If I would recount the trip of my boyhood and tell you, oh, I saw a rabbit here by this windmill, or I saw a bird there. It's a misunderstanding of the way that any kind of development of narrative and meaning is going to unfold. It's not to say that every story or every interpreter of their story, I think there is a sense in which there are some interpreters, some, you know, this is even the travel writers. I've always been a great fan of the travel writers. I think Paul Thoreau, his books can be entertaining. Uh, Think of his fiction, you know, The Mosquito Coast. I always thought he was a highly unlikable person because he seems to take advantage and he seems to speak down to the people and the the characters even, in his nonfiction and then even in his fiction. And so the human depravity that he recounts, in a sense, is a product of his own mind. You know, I always think of Jack London, the characteristic you get most from him, and really from the other travel writers that I really enjoyed, is that they're completely sympathetic characters. They're open to the impressions of the world around them. Jack London, you know, people that knew him, they note that what a uh, friendly person, that he was a great listener, he wanted to hear people's stories. And of course, the inferior travel writers, like the inferior theologians or those who are on a search for the historical Jesus, maybe their stuff is momentarily entertaining, but it ultimately turns out to be somewhat suffocating because they tell us more of their own small world more than they do of the subject that they're dealing with. You know, thinking of the Irish John Dominic Crossan, really the Jesus that he ends up recounting 
is the one that we would expect an Irishman overcome by the British Empire to recount the fight of a, you know, the reduction of Jesus to a, a peasant resisting empire. Well, of course, that's the Jesus that he's going to discover. This is what Allison does in uh, his entire book. He goes through, even talks about his own recounting of the life of Christ, that it ends up being more a reflection of his own history. I have to say that uh, Joseph Conrad's The Heart of Darkness, you know, really it comes out of his journeys into Africa. But of course, in The Heart of Darkness, you really don't learn anything about Africa. But it's the story of the, the main character's darkness that he takes into Africa with him. One of the travel writers who actually, I think, patterned his stories after Steinbeck's travels with Charlie is William Least Heatmoon's Blue Highways. But what you get in a lot of Heatmoon's work is his, his personal struggles, his marital troubles. He had gone through a divorce. And that seemed to color all of the highways. Uh, maybe blue was the right color. A book that is less well-known in this country but interested me was Alan Booth, who attempts to travel, or he does walk from the tip of Hokkaido to the tip of Kyushu to the Sato. He walks over the main islands of Japan. And there is a sense in, in which we learn more of Alan Booth that every village that he walks into, the children taunt him with calls of gaijin, you know, foreigner. And he grows increasingly irritated. The trip is in such a short period of time that he really never stays in any village or any place long enough to get to know the people more than any foreigner coming into a strange small village in Japan. I've experienced that many times coming into a small village that literally we would have children following the car, chasing the car, yelling at us, gaijin. Maybe he should have followed the example of Peter Jenkins, a much better travel writer, who in fact set out on a five-year walk, and he hears the evangelist James Robinson. He spends time working. He lives with a black family in the South, the walk is it's not a march across America, and maybe that's the problem with Alan Booth or many of the travel writers, that instead of a walk, instead of that kind of journey, that it's more of the, the march to reach the goal. But Jenkins takes his time, and he, I think, writes in the best tradition. Certainly, it involves the transformation of himself as he searches out the country. And so as a boy, when I took a, a journey, though I had not yet read Jenkins, my thought was to, to go slowly. And mileage was not the goal, but to, as Whipple said, search out the land as I went. The particular horse I was taking on this journey was a Tennessee walking horse. He was a fine walking horse, but he did not have a lot of endurance. Other trips I had taken an Arabian who was, was able to endure a long journey much better, though in the beginning of the travel he was a little bit uh, feisty. But on this trip I was taking my own horse. And I had the only the vaguest idea I was going to head south along the Rita Blanca Canyon, the Little White River. It's uh, on the outside of the town that we had moved to when I was a boy outside of Dalhart, Texas. You were able to ride down the canyon because, first of all, it was quite beautiful. Uh, Rita Blanca would be one of the key parts. You know, I think the 
XIT Ranch had been broken up, and Rita Blanca was one of the key sections. I think there were seven sections. And so you could ride down the canyon, and the fences were lined up in the canyon, in the middle of the canyon. And I hoped to ride then to, there were remains of a dinosaur that had been recently discovered. I hoped to, to ride then on to the Canadian. And all of the ride would occur within the boundaries of the old XIT Ranch, which was actually not the name that was originally given to the, the ranch. The people that owned it were a group of Chicago investors headed up by the famous, oh, I don't suppose he's famous today, but then he was famous. He was an innovator in uh, department stores. He had developed, innovated several key things in the department store. He was one of the wealthiest men of the period, John Farwell. He headed up the Chicago Syndicate, and the deal that he had made was that they would rebuild the Texas State Capitol building, which was already too small, and then it had burnt down. And so they hoped to build it for about a million five hundred thousand, and the land that they got, which was three million acres, would be in exchange for that courthouse. And the interesting thing about John Farwell, and maybe about this story, and maybe about Texas, is that he was a devout Methodist, and in fact had been key in starting the career of Dwight L. Moody. They were at the YMCA, which John Farwell and Moody were in together, that they had begun the YMCA in Chicago. And Moody was one day there as a young man, and the preacher that was supposed to preach that Sunday did not show up. And so Farwell turned to Moody as a young man. Moody, I think, was a shoe salesman at that point, and said, well, Moody, you get up and preach. And, of course, that's the beginning of one of the most storied careers in evangelists uh, in the United States, of the, of the great American evangelists. You know, you go to Dwight L. Moody, Billy Sunday, Billy Graham, that in that line of thinking, and it was really John Farwell who not only initially encouraged him, but in fact would support his campaigns uh, throughout the United States. And even during the Civil War, Moody was preaching then to the troops that would uh, come together. And a lot of the, it's unusual. We don't think about the wartime period as being a period in which people would turn to religion but in fact they came into that war it said that it was one of the most irreligious populations of the american history and after the war they would be one of the most religious groups of people and many would credit moody and behind moody they would credit john farwell john farwell would do a similar thing you know when he came to the chicago business district he really is credited with taking what was a, a really a small town and making it into a, a business empire. And that's what he hoped to do in the Texas Panhead. So we often think about, you know, the kind of outlaws and there's a kind of romantic, transgressive picture of early Texas, which may have been true even uh, in the Panhandle prior to the arrival, uh, or even after Farwell, you know, the early history of the ranch had its own colorful characters, but very quickly John Farwell would put into place a kind of Methodist understanding, a pietistic understanding, you know, on the ranch. There would be no cussing, no firearms, no alcohol. 
and the cowboys were not allowed to even own their own horses. That is, that he completely controlled their lives. And this is no small thing because of the XIT Ranch. It was the largest fence ranch in the world. Some 1,500 miles of fence were put up from the northwest corner of the state. Uh, it would run about 250 miles, 275 miles into the middle of the state and then back up north. And so it was a huge section of the, the panhandle. And he would put the same effort into this Texas ranch. He really didn't buy it originally thinking that, he had, that it would be a ranch. In fact, he didn't visit the land until after they had bought it. And in fact, none of the, the Chicago syndicate visited the land until after they had purchased it. And so his original thought was that he could break it up into a kind of checkerboard pattern and make small farms out of it. It proved not to, to be suitable for that. The fact that this ranch had been there and this pasture was broken up, of course, this is the great irritant traveling in the prairie, but it uh, was also made it actually possible because, of course, Farwell and then subsequent ranchers uh, would build wells. I think Farwell had some 335 windmills that he would put up so I would carry three canteens of water. Water was the big problem. Faith and I recently saw a documentary in which land very similar to what I was writing through, except it was a, in the not on the southern border, actually the uh, immigration station, some 50 miles north of the border. And they did it purposely then because the area in which the border crossing was placed is so treacherous and so they've lost about they know of about 20 to 25 people they found 20 bodies but they've had many disappearances in the area and of course it's because water is not available and as i watched this documentary i realized well that looked very similar to the area that i uh, that i wrote in but the difference is i i think that first of all it was a sandier area and the other is that what little water was available, the stock tanks, the water did not have open flowing you know, out of the pipe between the water and the stock tank. The only place you could access the water was the stock tank itself. And so the, uh, the water was not fresh, but it was contaminated. In fact, one of the people that was featured in the documentary, it turned out that he had gotten water. They had all gotten water. Uh, and drank it out of the tank. They were so desperate for water. And it seems that he died of the infections that he got from the water. But at any rate, John Farwell would be the key developer of the ethos, I really think. You know, he had founded the Chicago YMCA, or was key in founding it, he would attribute. Some would say to the Third Great Awakening, you know, if you think of Moody, who is attached then to that awakening. Certainly Moody is the key figure, but Farwell is perhaps the key figure behind Moody, supporting his campaigns, and in fact, the impetus behind uh, Moody's rise then as a preacher and evangelist, that Farwell and Moody would visit northern troops under the sponsorship of uh, General Ulysses S. Grant and convince them certainly of anti-slavery and of Farwell himself was a, a something of a pacifist but obviously not a full-blown full-fledged pacifist but he certainly believed in a kind of pietistic 
millennialism. And as a result of their campaign, soldiers coming out of the war who may have entered the military as one of the most unchurched generation since that time left the military very much in the mold of Moody's brand of American Christianity. And so Farwell really is going to be a shaper of a lot of the ethos uh, of Chicago. And I would think that the company, you know, the Capital Freehold Land Company and Land and Cattle Company, the syndicate, or maybe just the XIT Ranch, there is a characteristic, I think, that you find certainly in the panhandle of Texas, I can't speak for the, the full, all of the state, that is going, I think, to reflect this early history of the, the state, that it is Farwell's, you know, he's going to fence off the territory he uses. I think the frying pan ranch had used barbed wire a little bit, but certainly not as extensively as Farwell would do. And by fencing off the land, he's able to control who comes and goes. And he's the one who introduces the science of breeding. He's going to create the, the trail drive to Montana, along with other trail drives, you know, that we often picture with the kind of the mythical cowboy experience. But his would be certainly a Methodist cowboy that is going to develop out of that, out of his vision out of his understanding of the growth of civilization, law and order. It's very much attached to his Methodist eschatology and his uh, pacifism. He had originally thought to partial out the land, but when they bought the ranch, the land otherwise was selling for less than what they had bought the land, and so he could not re sell it. You know, he had pictured a kind of verdant Eden of small farms and ranches, that had certainly succeeded in the East, and he had such confidence uh, from his experience in Chicago that he thought he could reduplicate that. But he considered that the Western experience had produced men like Grant and Lincoln, and that the boundless fertility of the West would combine to produce the brain and bond for a new millennial progress in the imagination of Farwell. There was a new moral race that could harness the boundless supply of the West for the world. You know, he describes his experience in Chicago, the 40 years there, as the greatest strides of progress in the history of the human race. And of course, he saw his own contribution to that progress, as many did, to have been quite significant. But the measure against which he determined this progress may have been a scene he witnessed as a boy among the Sauk Indians who camped near his home. He saw them prepare a muskrat for consumption in a kind of drive, you know, primal drive for survival. They wrap the muskrat in the fur of another animal and they kind of heat it and drop it in a small hole full of water and attempt to boil the muskrat until it was only slightly cooked and then they consumed the animal entrails and all. Farwell describes them cleaning off the bones, sucking on the bones. And so he had only to glance back to recall the scene of a kind of brute survival and recognized that the displacement of these people who once inhabited all of America, he didn't see it in a negative light, but it was once itself a marker of the progress. In a line from his memoirs, he writes, Indians are few in number, and we are the most honored nation on earth. Honor and progress are marked by the diminishment of the uncivilized wilderness. 
which had produced the native peoples. And of course that's the sensibility that you get all over this country that in a kind of colonial Christianity, even the pacifist sort that uh, I think is preached by Moody and that Farwell takes up, that there is a kind of inundation of the indigenous people such that they're erased. Farwell would in fact become the Indian agent under President Grant. Uh, he was appointed and he's going to end up treating and understanding the natives very much in the way that he describes here. And I think that there is an inherent problem that in how we deal with culture, how we understand where we've come from, how we picture the relationship even between Christianity and Judaism. I think it gets at the problem that we all have in relationship to our culture. You know, is Judaism going to be carried over into Christianity? Certainly not in some cases, that certainly with the Galatians and others who are not Jewish, but uh, Gentile. To be Jewish, to become circumcised, to keep Torah, in some way would undo who they are. On the other hand, for people who are Jewish, like Paul himself and many of the Jewish Christians, that it's not that when they become Christian that their Jewish culture and ethnicity or ethnic identity is undone, but it continues. And so part of the problem that we have in this country is that we've almost begun from a, a blank slate of genocide that's been created by a kind of colonial ideal that has more or less wiped out the notions that were there inherent to the indigenous peoples. One of the key notions would have been a, a notion of harmony, a notion of, of uh, accord with the land, with other people. That is, I think there's a, a basic notion of peace. There's a basic notion of harmony, not simply with nature, but with God and the world. In the Christianizing of this country, certainly the Christianizing of Texas, this sense of harmony, of getting along, that there is a kind of alienation. I felt as a boy that there is a kind of cruelty that is there in the, the treatment of the land, the treatment of the animals, the treatment of the people. One of the key lessons that one gets from, for example, the book of Hebrews, and it may be shocking as we first say it, is, is that Christ made no permanent or enduring impact on culture. That needs to be explained, but the point is that human culture, certainly it's been impacted at various points, but the point is that culture is not the enduring medium of the impact. Cultures come and go, and the enduring redemption of Christ is not to be found in an enduring social structure or an enduring city. In fact, that's what the book of Hebrews says. Here we do not have a lasting city. We are not seeking the city, which is of this world or seeking the city which is to come. A city that is a particular social arrangement, a hierarchy, an institution, an enduring social structure. There is no enduring city. The primary exhibit in a counter-argument would be Christendom that uh, tended in fact to want to create some sort of enduring city, a new form of culture. It could be argued this is really what's taking place with the Judaizers or with the notion that the law rules. The idea of Christendom, that Christendom, certainly there is things that have been produced, modern medicine, the hospital, scientific technical achievements, maybe we could credit to a form of Christendom. Maybe this comes attached to a new form of uh, humanism. Ultimately, Christendom is an attempt then to found a, an enduring city, I'm afraid. And authentic Christianity is an outside-the-city kind of 
understanding. And what this means in terms of human experience is that we can't capture that experience in a kind of ordinary history. That the history that we encounter in Christ and the way that we're going to recount our own history is not one that we can capture within the parameters of an ordinary history. You know, Karl Barth said that he could not become Catholic due to the Analogia Entis, and he develops the notion of an Analogia Fide. Now, again, I've talked about that it may be that Barth has a misunderstanding of the Analogia Entis, but certainly there is this idea that the analogy of faith presumes that human reality is something like a, a, a desolate nothing, and the Word of God aims at us, as Bart said, and smites us in our existence. And we realize our own ontological frailties. Maybe this is why God's presence is clearest to us. You know, think about the magnificent stories. Jesus' own ministry begins then in the wilderness outside the city. It's going to end outside the city. There is the sense that God's presence Certainly in my journeys, as I think I traveled to, one of the places that I went was uh, adobe walls. It was a desolate place. It was especially hot. In fact, my dogs, it was so hot, my dogs abandoned me. And I rode up uh, through the Canadian. I came to the adobe walls, and I was camped up on the Canadian. And that evening, my horse left me. He ran away. Coyotes, it was such a wild area. I don't think they had, were used to seeing humans. In the morning, in the bright of the day, coyotes trotted right up into my camp, not in a threatening manner, but just kind of looking at me. One of my dogs, a Belgian shepherd, a black Belgian shepherd, who was quite a vicious dog, he ran the coyotes away. But I really think they were just uh, there to get a better look at the two-legged intruder. I always think about that time, the, the period in which I set off walking, kind of Placid resignation, you know, and maybe that was the best part of the trip, is when I was set afoot once again. The lost dogs, the runaway horse. It determined that this walk would have to be made, and, you know, I just took it in stride, literally, that it became part of the point of the journey. And so you think of the colorful history of that place of which, which I was in. I was at Adobe Walls, you know, that's where... Billy Dixon is said to have taken a thousand-yard shot and that Kit Carson defended himself then in the adobe walls. That history, you know, that city of man, human history, it's just absorbed. Today, in fact, adobe walls is an archaeological dig, but when I was there, the grass had already grown over the scene. I just, the only way I knew that I was at this historical place, there were a few stone markings. Uh, there was a, a plaque that was put up. The most memorable thing that I have of the time, in fact, is as I was walking and looking for my horse that I saw dozens of tiny creatures and they were rolling the horse manure that had been left by my own horse into balls. There were dozens of these. I'd never seen that many what are called tumblebugs before. And so at 14, maybe 13, I can't remember, but I, I only had a vague notion of the history of the place. In fact, I would associate adobe walls not with Billy Dixon's 1,000-yard shot with the Comanches or Quanta Parker, but I would associate it with the tumblebugs. What I brought to the place, what my own interpretive frame was, is the way the, the, through which I saw it. 
Now, I eventually caught my horse and made my way to the Turkey Track Ranch, which in fact was one of the ranches that uh, uh, the Farwell had sold a portion of the XIT to. Uh, it too then was a kind of syndicated ranch, a, a corporate ranch. And the man who I took to be the foreman, he had no interest. I had lost my dogs. Uh, by that time, I had caught my horse. Maybe the business of ranching was all that you know, made him oblivious to where he was or made him oblivious to a, a boy who was stranded in the middle of the wilderness. He just refused to let me use the telephone, to use the two-way radio. I just set off once again. The only place I could go to was the town of Phillips, Texas. That was about 40 miles away, and to get to Phillips, I would have to cross the Canadian River. And, of course, the river, I don't think of a roaring river. It was just a, at that point, there wasn't much water in the stream. That wasn't the part of the river that I was afraid of. But the Canadian is famous for its uh, quicksand. So I went out and tested the, the sand and thought it would hold my horse. And, in fact, that he immediately uh, sunk up to his withers and just sat there. I don't know, maybe he was just cooling off. Maybe he was enjoying himself. I don't know, I, cu I couldn't tell. So I just sat on the bank of the river. I was content with, it was a cool place and the horse seemed content. He stopped sinking eventually. I don't know, maybe he became bored with the game, but he was able to lunge to more solid ground and I eventually made it to Phillips, and rather than uh, even attempt to ride home, I called home, and uh, Johnny French, who I always thought of as a true cowboy, he had worked on a ranch, I think he had managed a ranch, he drove up uh, with a horse trailer to rescue me. In the end, I'm not sure how many miles I traveled, but the memory of that particular time is firmly woven. Uh, in my life, in all of the journeys I made, the road, the pilgrimage, the journey, the narrative, that really constitutes the past. For me, it leads through that prairie to the present time. And I could never have worked out Thomistic style from the being of the prairie to the being of God. That is, I don't think God was out there on the prairie apart from my own understanding. It was too desolate and empty, apart from the eyes of faith to see its beauty. General Sheridan said of Texas that if he had to choose between hell and Texas, he would choose hell. It might uh, give an idea of the emptiness of the Texas panhandle, but maybe that's just uh, the eyes that one looks at it. Uh, Sheridan, in fact, would later apologize for that statement. But given the being of God revealed in Christ, understanding the Texas prairie as the place in which God, in fact, I think was revealed to me, it became the first great love of my life. And so I guess in my own understanding, the state plains, you know, that part of the prairie that in fact had been the escape of many an outlaw, many a Comanche. And when I got there, of course, it was just desolate. But nonetheless, the state plains are just west of the New Jerusalem in my own geographical memory. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. 
please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.